Hi, Doxology. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm a member here, and I'm going to be doing the scripture reading tonight, uh, which is going to be in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. Um, so I invite you to turn your Bibles there. If you do not have a Bible with you, you are welcome to use the black Bibles in the pew in front of you. Uh, we just ask that you return those Bibles at the end of the sermon as those belong to Christ Church. If you'd like to take a Bible home with you, we do have Bibles, these light blue Bibles uh, in, the, in the front. Uh, you're welcome to take one of those as our gift to you. Um, so I invite you again to turn to uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign, sorry, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. My name is Scott Red. It's a joy to be with you again. I think last time I was here was Super Bowl Sunday, if I remember. I was looking back through our uh, our text and I noticed I said, I said, the Lord has conquered Baal in a knot, but... Uh, he will not be able to conquer Brady and Mahomes, and um, so it's good to be back with you all now, uh, nearly a year later. I'm, I'm the president in a uh, Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary at RT, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in D.C. area, and I've gotten to get to know your pastor uh, and the Portico pastors as well uh, through that work, and it's just a pleasure and a joy to be able to be with you all, to have them as friends and confidants and counselors. Uh, and to be able to come with my own family and worship uh, with this body of Christ on a Sunday evening. And it's, it's just a joy to be with you. And so thank you for having us. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and open up in prayer, and then we'll delve into this important passage. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we read your word. Help us to understand uh, sometimes, Lord, as we step into your word, we feel as if we're stepping into a totally different culture, a totally different time, and things seem to be said and spoken of in a way that may seem strange or disorienting to us. But we also know that through the power of your spirit, you reveal yourself and you draw us to you in this word, in these scriptures. And so, Lord, we pray that that would happen as well tonight, that you would bless us, that we would read it, that we'd rightly understand it that we would glorify you in our interpretation, our application of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is a fascinating passage, particularly for Advent, because it really is a true Advent passage in the sense that it's about 
waiting. It's about anticipation. However, unlike many Advent passages, it's got a fulfillment of the waiting, kind of packaged in there. This is, in a way, about met expectations, not unmet expectations, but met expectations. It's about two individuals in particular, two characters who have spent their whole lives, both of them are marked by being old, they're aged, they have been waiting. And yet here they finally see the object of their long perseverance, and they rejoice. And as a result, their response is, to truly sing a lullaby to the Lord's Messiah, to the King. It's a fascinating passage. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of context as to what's going on here, it says there was a man in Jerusalem. Well, well, why is Mary in Jerusalem with the baby Jesus? And Luke is kind of taking us on a journey. He's taking us out of uh, a place that was very quiet and kind of personal, a rural setting. They're in a manger where the baby is born in a small town. We're taken out of that kind of quiet space, sort of forgotten space. It's the place where you go when there's no room even in the hotel. You go to this place, and suddenly we're moved right into a very busy, bustling place. That is the location of the temple. So why this? Why, why this transition? Well, what we're seeing here, first of all, I just want to say kind of two things about what's going on. The first one is this, is that Mary and Joseph are being very observant of the Old Testament law. They're aware of what the Bible says in the Old Testament about what you are supposed to do following the birth of a child. And what Luke is telling us here, without getting us into too deep into the details, Luke is actually writing mostly for a Gentile audience. So he's not actually very interested in getting us into the details of the Hebrew Bible. But he's giving us just enough information so the informed Gentile and the Jew who in the diaspora who's reading this would understand. And notice what he points out. He says, she goes in after her purification. That would have been about 40 days of time where the mother and her child would be set apart from everyone else, according to the Old Testament custom. And the reasons could be a variety of reasons. One of them is just this is the practice that the Lord commanded them to do. When a woman gives birth to a child, she's set apart to be with her child for about 40 days. Okay? And now after that time is done, she's now able to go and present the child as she was required to do in the temple to present it to the Lord. And this is a way of actually saying, Lord, this is my firstborn. Just like I give you my tithes and offerings from the first of the things I've earned, just like I give you uh, the best of my flocks and the first harvest that comes off of the trees and the vines. So when my first child is born, I come and I I present it before you and offer sacrifices on behalf of my child. She's following the rules laid out in Exodus chapter 13 for presenting a child and consecrating that child. And so that's the context of this. But why, why do we get this little piece of information that she's coming after her purification in order to deliver the child and present him to the Lord? And I think what Luke is telling us here is not something like, look how wonderful Mary is, we should be like her. Okay? Though there is that, but I don't, I don't think that's the goal. The focus throughout these early stories is really to focus on Jesus and what Jesus is, is doing and what he's fulfilling and who he is called to be. It actually seems like Luke is highlighting here and elsewhere in all of the other intro stories that we get in chapter 1, which is quite a long chapter, We're learning about how Jesus is brought into, he is incarnate into a family that is honoring of the Lord, 
hearing of the Lord's commands and appreciative of what it means to be the family in which the Christ child is born. So what we're learning is, we're learning here that Mary and Joseph are doing it the right way. And how are they doing it the right way? They're bringing him in to the temple. And that's where we meet these two witnesses, Simeon and Anna. Well, I want to remind you again, remember Luke is writing uh, the gospel in a way that will accomplish what his goals are, his theological agenda is for his audience. And that's not a cynical thing to say. That's just acknowledging that Luke is mindful of how he's telling you the gospel story. He even tells us this on the front end. He says, I interviewed a lot of people. I read a lot of other texts out there. He probably even had, I think it's a good argument to, there's a good argument that he probably had Mark and maybe Matthew in front of him. He was working off of other gospels, but he's drawing our attention to specific aspects of Jesus' ministry that we might have missed. And one of the things is this. He says, you know, you need to understand that Gentiles may not understand the Old Testament, as we already said. So he's going to give us the gospel, without, but without a lot of like deep Old Testament stuff. And when there is Old Testament material, he's going to explain it to us because he says, you, you dumb uh, Gentiles may not understand what's going on. And through that, we say, thank you, Luke, for doing that. And then he, he's giving it to us in a way that we might understand. But there's something else about Luke's concerns when he's telling us the story, and it comes out immediately in this passage. Luke is interested in people or the voices who are bearing witness to Jesus who may not be the voices you would expect to get in a first century Roman second temple Jewish context. And how that often shows up is that Luke is very interested in letting us know what women are involved in the story of Jesus. It's one of the things Luke is just interested in. He wants to highlight where women are involved, where women are actually coming out and bearing witness to Jesus. Now, you might be surprised by this, but in a first century Roman context like this, the testimony of a woman may not have actually been taken very seriously. It may not have, and this may have been considered kind of a weakness for the gospel message, that, that a woman is giving the testimony. In some situations, we know that women actually might have had like a two-thirds vote kind of thing. If they were witnesses, for instance, in a court case, they would have had the value of maybe a partial or a fragmented witness, not, not a full witness like a man, right, as, as the Romans might have perceived it. But notice how Luke tells the story. He's very specific in drawing our attention to the women who are involved in the gospel proclamation. It's not just Anna that we run into here in this story, but actually look back at the beginning of Luke. Luke keeps giving us these little songs. He's interested in songs that are poems or worship odes to Jesus. And notice the first one that we actually get is from Mary. Mary gives the Magnificat. She seems to be drawing off of two other, possibly, or at least one one definite uh, female poet of the Old Testament, Hannah, Okay, so Hannah, who's the mother of Samuel, has a long song about her son Samuel, and Mary seems to be drawing off of the song of Hannah. She's also drawing off of Psalm 113, which has to do with uh, the concerns of a woman, uh, particularly a woman who's barren and wants to have children, so it's Sometimes some people think that maybe Psalm 113 was written by a woman, but she's drawing off of those old poems and she's using them to give glory to Jesus. So we've got Mary's song, and then it's followed by Zechariah's song, and then it's followed by the angel's song, right? Peace and goodwill towards men. 
And then it's followed by Simeon's song. And then it ends with, now we don't get her song, we don't get Anna's song, but we end with seeing her worshiping and glorifying the Lord. So notice what Luke is doing. He's saying Mary, Zechariah, angels, Simeon, Anna. We have a series of worshipers who are receiving the Christ child and they're responding in worship and it's bracketed by these two women bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the incarnation. That's very Luke. It's just the way Luke rolls. That's how he tells his gospel. And so let's look at these witnesses. I want to dive now a little bit more deeply into this because notice Luke starts, first of all, with Simeon. And, and what do we know of Simeon? Well, we know that Simeon has, uh, is a prophet of the Lord. He's, he's in the spirit, as it were. It actually says it was revealed to him by the Spirit at some prior time in his life. The Lord revealed to him that you will not die, right? You will not die before you see the consolation of Israel. Now, there's a lot going on here, okay? But I want to highlight just, first of all, this. Simeon himself, his life is now a sign to Israel that the consolation, whatever that is, is going to come soon. In other words, it's not going to come in a thousand years. He's not going to be, you know, a vampire living for a millennium, okay? It's sometime in his lifetime, he's going to see the consolation of Israel come. You see, Simeon himself, his life is a testimony to the nearness of the coming of the Lord. The phrase, the consolation of Israel, probably refers to passages in the Old Testament like the one in Isaiah 40 where uh, the, the, the restoration from exile is described as being this great day of comfort. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40 verse 1 says, Comfort, this is the Lord speaking through him, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord to his people. Comfort, comfort, your, your sins have been paid for in full. The restoration is now here. A voice crying out in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. Right? That, that whole passage is talking about this period of restoration that was to come to Israel. And it reminds us that the whole of the Old Testament comes to us, that whole story that we find in the Old Testament comes to us under the shadow of its end point, and the end point is the exile. The whole story of the creation of the heavens and the earth, the creation of Adam and Eve, the fall that happens afterwards, Everything seems to be going, you know, going to destruction. And then what happens? The Lord says, no, 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 I'm going to make the earth stable again so that people can live there in peace. And you get the Noahic, the covenant with Noah. And then he chooses Abraham and his family from out of all of the people on the earth. And he says, out of you, I'm going to make a hope. A light's going to shine again. Out of your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12. And then we keep moving on and we get the story of Moses. And Moses, we learn about the temple and how the Lord is going to dwell with his people, this building that they're visiting here where the Lord shows his presence with his people uh, and how he's going to dwell and, and move along with them, tabernacling with them. The story of David where we find out about a king who will come and reign with peace. He'll reign with covenant faithfulness. and He'll bring blessing and prosperity to the whole world. All of those promises, that whole story comes to this abrupt end in the exile. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament never really recovers from it. 
by the end of the Old Testament, we're left with the people of God, half of them in exile, half of them have returned to Jerusalem. But even the ones who've returned to Jerusalem haven't been able to regain the glory. They haven't seen the consolation of Israel that, that Isaiah talked about. They didn't have a voice crying out in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament ends not with a, not with a bang, not with this wonderful finality, finale, but it ends with a kind of whimper. The Old Testament is a tragedy. The last words we find in it is is Ezra, or excuse me, Nehemiah on his knees saying, Lord, don't forget about us. And so that's the context into which we see Simeon step onto the scene and be told that he will not die before the consolation of Israel comes. Let's look at his song starting in verse 29. Let your serpent, servant now depart in peace, or your servant is now departing in peace. Notice he begins with the rest that awaits him now in death. You see, rest is appropriate now for Simeon because he has seen the salvation of the Lord. There's no anxiety left. There's no fear left. There's no question mark about, Lord, will you remember us like Nehemiah prayed at the end of the Old Testament? But rather, he has seen the salvation of the Lord. Notice what he also says. He says the salvation of the Lord that is prepared in the presence of the nations. It's an interesting way to say it, isn't it? And yet this is an important aspect of the gospel. If, for you Christians, you may not know about this yet. For you, if you're, if you're a non-Christian, this may be interesting news to you. But our God, the God of the Bible, is very interested in what he's doing being revealed to the whole world. This is not a secret club where you get secret insights or secret knowledge as to how to be saved or you kind of learn a riddle and then you get kind of sworn into the secret society. That's not how the gospel ever was, even in the Old Testament. It was always prepared in front of the nations. It was always right out there for everyone to see. We will see this in the life of Christ. We see it. And those who bear witness to him, whether it's the Syrophoenician woman or the man of the Gadarenes or Pontius Pilate himself, we'll see it in the mission of the apostles as they go out and we see Gentiles flooding into the church at unprecedented rates. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a public work and it is done in the presence and in the face of the nations. It's not a secret knowledge. It's not for the select few, but it's for the whole world. I want to zero in, though, on what he says at the end of this song. There. Notice how, what he, how he describes Jesus. He says, He is the salvation prepared in the presence of all the nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Notice how he starts. He starts with this idea of a light of revelation. This is a very important aspect of what the restoration was going to be, the restoration from exile. It was never supposed to just be about this small little piece of real estate in the eastern Mediterranean. As a matter of fact, Isaiah himself, the prophet, says, and when, and when the Lord's glory returns into Israel, we all know this if you've been listening to Handel's Messiah, right? Who will see it together? All flesh will see it together. Right? When I was a kid, I thought it was all fish will see it together. I was like, why are the fish going to see the glory of, the God, of God together? But it's not. It's all flesh There's no other way in the Old Testament that you can really say it that clearly. He's not just talking about Israel. He's not just talking about people kind of in the immediate vicinity of the Palestinian Levant. He's talking about all humanity. 
they'll all see the glory of God together. Well, how could that happen? Because God is going to send a light of revelation even to the Gentiles. The story of redemption was never just about Israel. It was always about the nations. That work that God gave Adam and Eve back in the garden to fill the earth and subdue it, that was never abdicated. That rule was never rescinded. It was always about the whole world. And Israel would be the conduit through which that light of revelation would come. And Simeon says, here he is. He was the light. But notice he doesn't end there. He says, he is also the glory, the glory of Israel. He's the radiance. He's the brilliance. He's the beauty of Israel. He's the true Israel, the true vine. We all wanted Israel to be righteous and faithful to the law. And here he is. Here's the Israelite observing the law, the one who shows the true glory of the people of God. You see, Jesus is not merely for the Gentiles. He is also the perfect, the perfect representation of everything Israel was called to be and could be. And here he comes, the most beautiful, glorious Messiah. And then the scene shifts. It seems like Mary and Joseph say, what what is this you're doing here? I don't understand. You've taken our child. You're singing this song. And he says, let me clarify it for you. You need to understand that I am a sign waiting for your child to come because your child is the main sign. I'm the sign for the sign. My life won't come to an end until I see your child. But now that your child is here, he is the sign. And what is the sign? The sign of blessings and of judgment. Blessings to the people of God and judgment to his enemies. This is the first hint that we actually get here in the gospel that Jesus' life, this glorious glory of Israel, the light of revelation to the Gentiles, is also going to be a life of sorrow and of grief. There's going to be an aspect to this that hurts. He even turns to Mary and he kind of says especially to her, This is going to hurt you especially. You see, your son is going to be a man of sorrows. And he's going to be opposed by many. And what's true for Mary there, she senses it in an existential way that we don't experience. And yet it is true for all of those who follow Christ Jesus, the sign child. We recognize that he is not just marking the blessings of salvation for his people, but that he's also marking the judgment that will come against those who are enemies of God. As Jesus says, they persecuted me first. Do not be surprised when they persecute you. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, when people meet you, it's going to be like they're meeting Jesus So don't be surprised. For some of them, you will smell like death to them. But for others, you're going to smell like eternal life. You see, Jesus is the sign child. But as the Spirit of Christ now indwells us, we become the sign children, don't we? We become the mark of God's blessings and salvation and also the mark of his coming judgment. There'll be times when people meet you and for inexplicable reasons, they will say, I praise Jesus when they hear you share the gospel with them. And there will be others who, though they meet you, though they have every reason in the world to want to serve Jesus, every reason in the world to accept the gospel, they'll turn away and say, that is not for me. 
because Jesus is marking both sides. He's marking the blessing for those who are in him, but he's also marking the judgment that will come to those who reject the gospel. The story then shifts to Anna, this second character. Her name is Anna. That's just a Hellenization or a Greek version of the name Hannah, which is probably actually a shortened form of the name Johanna, meaning the Lord is gracious, the Lord is faithful. And Hannah's interesting because she steps into the story kind of from the outside. We don't expect her, but she comes in in this long tradition of prophetesses and and, and women who are speaking the word of God and are recognizing the word of God for what it is. Think of people like Deborah back in Judges chapter 4 and 5 who are out prophesying around the countryside. Or maybe even more importantly, there's a prophetess who's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 22 called Huldah. And she's a very interesting story because when they find the book of Deuteronomy in the temple, you should go back, it's a really interesting story. The book of Deuteronomy had been lost. They find it, they bring it out, they go to present it to the king, and the king says, how do we know that this is really God's word? And they say, we should take it to Huldah, the prophetess. And they take it to her and she says, yep, this is God's word. Anna is actually acting in a very similar function here. What is she doing as a prophetess? She's sitting back, and as they come to her, she sees the glory of Israel be presented. She sees Simeon offer his confirmation, his his prayer of worship. And what does she do? She responds with thanksgiving and worship herself. She's affirming what Simeon has said and done. She has a kind of spiritual insight. We don't know much about her, but Luke does include this little biographical piece that she had had a tragic life of sorts. She had been married early on. She had lost her husband, been widowed in an early age. She's very old now. It's possible she might even be near hundreds. That's not actually outside. I mean, that's outside the ordinary, but it's not unheard of in this time. It's possible that she was around 100 years old or so. And yet that whole time she had been waiting and serving faithfully in the temple of the Lord as a prophetess. And now finally at the end of her life, like Simeon, she doesn't have the same promise that Simeon had, but here at the end of her life in her old age after she'd seen so much, as, as, after she had ministered to the Lord in her singleness, after she had been faithful, waiting, 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 she is able to bear witness to the Christ child. And as a result, she's remembered in the gospel for the role that she plays. One single woman, old age, prophesying in the temple, and being one of the first to proclaim the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. See, as we consider Simeon and Anna, we have to remember that we are waiting on the Lord as well. We know that the story is not a tragedy. It's not like the Hebrew Bible leaves us to believe at the very end where it's a tragedy and the comedy hasn't come yet. The the restoration hasn't happened yet. The final good ending hasn't happened. We're still waiting. And yet we know it's not a tragedy. We know that it truly is a comedy. We bear witness to the light of revelation to the Gentiles. We too come in glory at the glory of Israel. And yet as we wait, I want to just remind us to do three things. This will lead us into our Lord's Supper that comes next. As we're waiting on the Lord, I want to remind us this. Let's wait 
with sincerity. Let's wait with authenticity. Let's be honest about the fact that we're waiting. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are waiting for Him to return. It's not as if you come to, you come to Christianity and you come to all the wonderfulness and happiness and glory that you could possibly imagine, but you are coming to come and wait. We have to be honest about this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. We have to be reminded that when we are calling the others to the gospel, we are bidding them come and wait. Come and wait. But we need to wait with generosity. Don't squander your waiting on the Lord to return. Don't squander this time that he has given you with these people around you and these neighbors that you live with and these members of your church and this city in which you live. Don't squander this opportunity while you wait. But but wait, rather, with generosity. Make the most of this time. Ask the Lord what he's doing in your life and look around you and say, why have you put me in your providence amongst these people and at this job and this family? What would you have me do? So we want to wait with sincerity and we want to wait with generosity. But then lastly, we want to wait with confidence. You see, unlike Simeon for most of his life, we have now seen the light of revelation to the Gentiles. We know the person of Jesus Christ. His spirit indwells us. And we wait with confidence. The salvation has already begun in Christ and it's happening all around you. The Gentiles are enlightened and they're flowing in. Just look around the room. Gentiles that Paul could never have dreamed of are now members of the body of Christ and are worshiping an Israelite Messiah. The Israel of God is growing and it's growing full of worshipers of the son of David. The temple, and that is you, according to Jesus and according to the Apostle Paul, Don't you know that you're the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells now? The temple is expanding over the face of the earth, even to far-flung countries like America and China, countries that the apostles could never have dreamed of. And like Simeon, we can now face death. We don't have to be afraid of it. We can recognize it for what it is, a peaceful departure, no longer the object of fear, but now an object of rest because like him, we have seen with the eyes of faith the glory of Israel and the light of the Gentiles. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this time to you. We pray, Lord, that you would hear our praise, that you would hear our worship, that you would hear our prayers. We pray, Lord, that as the Spirit dwells within us, And we respond by saying Jesus is Lord and meaning it in the Spirit, Lord. I pray that we would find our own hearts lifted up and rejoicing. Dear Lord, draw us to you that we might see Christ afresh, that we might anticipate his kingdom. And like Simeon and Anna, that we would, Lord, persevere to the day when we see him anew. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.